you know, these deer are there. It's not a function of that they're just disappearing and just like, you know, going to the next county kind of thing. They're, they're around. It's just, you know, they're also outside of hunting pressure. They're also trying to live their lives. You know, resources are changing. You know, so food sources are changing, you know, day to day. And so they have to be adaptable and constantly moving around. So they may be in an area for a short period of time and then off they go to another area. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we're discussing another really interesting deer movement study. Uh, This time we're talking with Dr. Andy Little of the University of Nebraska's Applied Wildlife Ecology and Spatial Movement Lab about some research he conducted several years ago in Oklahoma looking at how bucks respond to hunting pressure. And this is a fascinating look into why a lot of mature bucks seem to vanish as soon as deer season starts. Andy breaks down how quickly they responded to hunting pressure, um, where they went, you know, how their behavior changed. Just a lot of really cool information uh, looking at buck behavior in relation to hunting pressure. So be sure to stick around for that discussion. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at Silencer Central. If you've ever considered a suppressor to help protect your hearing, uh, be sure to check out the folks at Silencer Central. Uh, They do more than just sell silencers and suppressors. Uh, They'll walk you through the entire process to ensure you stay on the right side of the law. And uh, they've been doing that for over 15 years now. So if that's something that interests you, be sure to check them out at silencercentral.com. Hey, and don't forget, there's just a couple of weeks left in our Gear for Deer sweepstakes. Uh, This is one you definitely don't want to miss. There is a pile of great prizes from our friends at Quiet Cat, uh, Performance Outdoors, First Light, and Tethered. And that includes a premium Illinois November rut hunt for 2024. Uh, You can either pack your bow or your gun. It's, It's the winner's choice. Uh, it also includes a new Quiet Cat e-bike that comes in First Light Spectre camo. Uh, over $1,500 in First Light gift cards will be given out, as well as a few full saddle hunting setups from our friends at Tethered. All the prizes were generously donated by those great companies, so every bit of the money we raise will go directly to NDA's mission to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. Hey, and I'd love to be able to win that package myself. But unfortunately, I'm not eligible, but hey, you guys are. So be sure to hit that pause button on this episode. Head over to DeerAssociation.com slash gear for deer and get your chances today. And with that, guys, let's jump on the phone with Andy Little to discuss how bucks respond to hunting pressure. Well, hey, Andy, welcome to the uh, Deer Season 365 podcast. I have uh, really been looking forward to this one. I, I always enjoy uh, hearing about these these GPS collared deer studies, but uh, before we before we dive into your research, can you kick things off by just telling us a little bit about yourself as, yeah. as far as your your background and maybe what led you to to researching whitetail deer? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, thanks again, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and uh, and chat today a little bit about some of the deer work we've been doing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. Um, grew up in South Central Pennsylvania and uh, went to Penn State. 
uh, from undergrad degree in, in fisheries and wildlife, and then eventually made my way south and uh, did my master's at Mississippi State uh, University uh, working with deer, and specifically the, one of the projects we'll talk about today. Um, and then I made my way over to the University of Georgia and uh, worked with Mike Chamberlain on a wild turkey research project. Um, before uh, moving up here to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln as a faculty member, I'm an assistant professor uh, in the School of Natural Resources here at University of Nebraska. And um, I focus on um, basically habitat management, um, landscape management, um, working with landowners um, is a really key part of my position. My position 60% extension, 40% research. Um, I do a lot of work with game species um, here in the state of Nebraska. I currently have um, studies on pronghorn uh, as well as wild turkeys um, and pheasants. And then I do some other work on the topic of precision conservation, um, which is aimed at how do we find the balance uh, between uh, conservation and production eggs. So that's a little bit about myself. Um, I also will note uh, if anybody wants to you know, take and tune into our lab on our social media accounts, you can follow us at, at Awesome Lab, which is A-W-E-S-M Lab. Um, we are the Applied Wildlife Ecology and Spatial Movement Lab. And so we aptly named it that Awesome Lab. It was <laughs> memorable for people. So, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sure to, to put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah. Now, when you were at Penn State, now, did you do any work with their Deer Force study or was that pre? I, I did, actually. I okay. worked with, uh, yeah, I worked with Dr. Dwayne Diefenbach. I uh, didn't want to necessarily on the spatial uh, ecology side looking at uh, putting GPS collars out. I actually, we did some uh, rapid habitat assessments that we were working on with Dwayne. And I was a part of a study that he was uh, working with Pennsylvania Game Commission on. Um, and so I worked as a technician uh, on that for a summer. Uh, but I also worked there. Uh, Penn State has a deer research facility there, um, State College. And I worked there as an intern uh, for a couple of years. Um, did some uh, projects there, a uh, little um, kind of undergraduate level research projects uh, with Don Wagner, uh, who was managing the facility at the time. Okay. Yeah. I actually just, just got done talking with uh, yeah, Dwayne on the, well, as, as, as people listen to this episode, it'll be the previous episode. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. I cool. talked to Dwayne about uh, weather, weather impacts on deer movement. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, so very cool. I didn't realize that. A lot uh, of data up there. Oh yeah. 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 I didn't, I didn't realize that uh, you had went to Penn state and, and worked with Dwayne. So that's, that's cool. Yep. So how did this whole hunting pressure research project come about? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I, again, started uh, my master's at Mississippi State uh, University working with Dr. Steve Damaris, who uh, many of uh, your listeners probably know um, at the MSU Deer Lab. The project really was uh, birthed out of interest from landowners um, in Oklahoma, which is where the study was conducted, um, that were interested in how does hunting pressure simply affect uh, mature buck movements. Um, specifically, they were interested in really understanding, you know, is there certain densities of hunters on my property that may affect, you know, uh, how these deer behave? Um, you know, what is the response once, uh, you know, rifle season? In this case, there's a 16-day firearm season in Oklahoma um, that we did our study, build it around. How does that affect, you know, how, where are these deer are spending their time at? Are they jumping the fence, per se, and going to the neighbor's property and spending their time there? Um, and so that really was kind of the in <clears throat> initial inception of the project. Um, we worked with the Noble Research Institute, um, specifically at the time, Ken G, um, good friends with Steve. Uh, we basically set the project up there, uh, one of their uh, uh, ranches, 
um, in South Central Oklahoma, where we could actually control hunter density. And there's been some other studies that have been done prior to and even after ours. Um, but one of the big challenges has always been is you, it's challenging to really control hunter density. Um, you know, we can put out GPS uh, collars on deer and track them to landscape. Um, but when you're trying to go and look at, you know, how does the hunting pressure influence the deer movements, you really got to have a good sense of, you know, what does that pressure look like and maybe and standardize that um, and, and basically have uh, treatments, which we can dive into in a second, where we can look at that relative to a control um, where we have no hunting pressure at. So. Yeah. And, and as a, as a deer hunter yourself, I know you mentioned, you know, that that was a passion of yours. This had to be a dream project to fall yeah. into, I would imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Growing up in Pennsylvania, that's uh, one of my main things I did as a kid and still do today as a passionate deer hunter. And, and kind of uh, when people ask me about, well, you know, primarily, primarily rifle hunt, I said, no, it's basically archery on through rifle, muzzleloader, et cetera. Um, you know, I'm uh, out there in the field, basically September to you know January, specifically here in Nebraska, um, getting time out in the field deer hunting. And so again, that you know that passion growing up as a, a kid and really you know sparked my interest in wildlife management. And then this project was just a, a perfect fit uh, with my interest because again, I've always wondered, you know, where do these deer go? You know, once once you see them on your cameras, you know, preseason and then you know hunting season starts and you're like, well, they just seem to have vanished. Um, which of course was the the name, the aptly time name uh, for the Quality Whitetails article at that time, now National Deer Association. But uh, again, it was one of those where it was uh, perfectly named because these deer just seemingly vanished for whatever reason. So, yeah, I think that's something that that all of us, anybody who's deer hunting for any any length of time, I'm sure has has experienced that <laughs> at one time or another. You know, you've watched that deer all summer, and and you just know opening day, you know, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna get a shot. But oh yeah, it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, well, heck, I have uh, one that uh, this uh, hunting season here in Nebraska, really nice uh, twelve point I had on camera, probably scored you know probably one forty ish and. Seeing that buck on camera and, and getting some videos uh, of him and then just seemingly he just vanished. And and I don't know if uh, somebody ended up harvesting him at a, a later date or whatever, but uh, I haven't seen him back on camera. And so you're starting to wonder where, you know, where'd he go? But then I had one pop up last night on my uh, uh, cell cam. I haven't seen this buck the entire season, just kind of passing through. So nice high, high rack nine points. So that's they always they always surprise you that's for sure oh yeah yeah that, that's the good side the, the flip side of it yeah is you never know what other buck might show up that, that you haven't ever seen before uh, absolutely so, yeah, was, yeah so i guess can you can you walk us through just a a broad level overview of of how you set up and implemented this study and and then of course we'll dive into the specifics but just sure. kind of give us an idea of how how you laid this thing out yeah absolutely yeah so Again, you know, the, the question is really, you know, we're, we wanted to understand is, you know, where are these deer moving at uh, once the hunting season starts? And again, we focus this, this on a 16-day firearm season in Oklahoma. Um, and then we said, okay, you know, we want to look at, again, that hunter density, because that was one of the questions, you know, is there different densities of hunters that may influence, um, you know, where these deer spend their time and how are they staying there? Are they, you know, moving off to the neighbor's property? And this is particularly important for these uh, landowners in that area who kind of this is an important question for them is they're spending a lot of time and resources in, you know, various um, habitat management efforts, whether that be going prescribed fire, 
um, timber uh, management, et cetera. And then, you know, then, then uh, hunting season comes and those big bucks that they've been trying to manage for, you know, seemingly vanish and maybe go to the neighbor's property. And so saying, well, hey, you know, we, we want to understand, you know, how how many people should we have here on our properties? How do we kind of, you know, manage that, you know, risk per se, uh, that pressure um, so that we can hopefully harvest some of those mature bucks. And so uh, we started again, it was a, a ranch that the Noble Research Institute owned. Um, the uh, Oswalt Ranch is in South Central uh, Oklahoma. Um, that ranch is approximately about 5,000 acres. Um, and so what we did is we um, took that ranch and we divided it into um, two treatments, a low density, which was 100 per 250 acres, and then a high density, 100 per 75 acres. And then we had a control area, which was a, basically a no hunting area. And so some of, the, some of the listeners may be saying, well, hey, a high density, 100 per 75 acres out there. Um, you know, I have places that I've heard of where you might have several people on 100 acres. Um, that's not uh, necessarily uncommon. And so, again, these densities were specific uh, for that, uh, that study area, that region in Oklahoma where some of these questions were being generated. Um, and that's kind of how we based that decision on how many hunters we wanted to have for these low and high densities. Um, but yeah, once we basically set up those um, uh, areas, what we did is within um, each of those, uh, you know, low and high density treatments, um, we essentially, we again, carved out, you know, geographically and created boundaries. So we took like a brush hog through flagged areas, basically kind of making these little 75 acre uh, patches per se, if you want to say that. And then uh, that's essentially where that a hunter would be assigned. Um, and so we ended up, we had um, through the Noble Research Institute um, and their uh, efforts to work with getting some hunters. We got hunters, a number of them being employees and others um, that helped and basically to fill those, um, you know, those spots. And so essentially what we wanted to do to maintain that pressure, um, we obviously couldn't tell people during the week uh, days when they had to work, to, you know, we need to have you out there hunting. But on the weekends, we had three weekends of that 16-day uh, firearm season. Uh, we required the hunters to be out there for at least uh, four hours um, plus uh, to basically maximize and, and kind of ensure that we're getting that density of hunters, that pressure density um, there between those two treatments. And so, again, you know, we had um, anywhere from like nine, 18, 19 hunters or so um, in the high-density uh, and then we would end up having, um, you know, maybe five to six hunters in the low density. Again, each of them being assigned about in high density, 75 acres um, for them to hunt. And we want to try to mimic it just the same as you would if you were deer hunting. So we gave them a few days, um, you know, about a week or so before the season started to go out, scout that 75 acre spot, for example, um, find out where they wanted to put up a ground blind or hang a tree stand. Some of the people, they just wanted to still hunt. So it was kind of, we wanted to, you know, make this as realistic as possible. And then that's when the study began. We had, um, we had captured uh, bucks several months prior in the winter time. And we, all these bucks were, by the time the study came, the hunting season came around, they were at least two and a half plus years of age. Um, and then, we put those GPS collars on those bucks again several months prior. And during prior to um, about a couple weeks or so prior to the hunting season and through the rest of the hunting season and then postseason, we were getting GPS locations on those bucks every eight minutes. So very, very fine scale data on where they were at. Okay. 
And how many, how many deer did you put GPS collars on? So over the course of a couple of years, there were 37, I think approximately uh, uh, unique bucks that we had captured. Some of those bucks would, um, you know, we had them around for a couple of years. Um, so in other words, we captured them year one and then uh, they w- uh, were not harvested. Um, and then we were and, and not died. And they, we basically were able to recapture them and put a, another collar on them and get them for a second season. So we were able to get, you know, and again, on that ranch, and again, all those bucks are, they're moving, you know, it's not, they're all just staying on that ranch, you know, for 365 or 366 days a year, they're moving off on the neighbor's properties, but many of them would spend time on that uh, property throughout the year. Okay. And I assume, I mean, there was nothing, no high fence or anything separating these, these different units. So I assume some of these bucks would be seen in you know, multiple, you know, maybe the low density area as well as the high density and okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, like any, uh, yeah. So they obviously have a home range and they, they would overlap. And so you had some that would, you know, overlap even with the no hunting area and then the hunting area um, and spend their times amongst those different uh, treatments that we had in control. Okay. Got it. And just for those, you said it was in, um, in South Oklahoma. That's right. For those who might not be familiar with that area, can you kind of, uh, give us an idea of what that looks like as far as as far as habitat and and maybe yeah. typical deer density. Yeah, um, the the uh, I'm not uh, certain on the deer density per se in that specific area, um, but I will say for the general habitat, um, you know, it, it's kind of a you know mixed hardwoods, um, you know, with there's uh, eastern red cedar in there, you know, throughout the property. Part of the ranch was uh, managed for uh, cattle. Um, so there were obviously they had pasture areas where they would have cattle on, um, not during actual study, uh, but throughout, uh, earlier, like in the spring and summer portion of the year. Um, and so, you know, you had pastures mixed in there with some of those hardwood bottoms, um, you know, red oaks and, um, various other oaks in there and then other hard, hardwood species. Um, and, uh, again, it's, it was, you had drain, various drainages, you know, it was definitely a hilly property, pretty rocky. And uh, so these drainages typically in the bottom areas will be where you would see a lot of your hardwood trees. And then on, on your kind of ridge tops, if you want to say that's where they would end up, you know, grazing more of the cattle on some of those areas. Okay. Gotcha. And then as far as, and you said you spent um, a little time, I guess, getting some, some baseline deer movement data prior sure. to the, the hunters ever coming coming in right yeah yep yeah so once these collars they, they were programmed um basically once we captured the bucks and put a collar on them usually it's around like january february maybe early march um those collars at that time they were programmed to locate get a location gps location every 30 hours of that buck um, this is actually back when when uh now we have some newer collars we can take a lot more locations on uh, but these these collars we actually had to get the collars back to get the data off of them um, now we have systems set up that we can actually get that data sent to a computer. Um, but we uh, they would basically record location every 30 hours up until early November, and then it switched over, and then would start collecting that data in early November. So, um, you know, essentially, you know, it was basically about two weeks or so before the rifle deer season started. We had this kind of preseason time period in which we were getting eight lo- eight minute locations on all these bucks um, on the property. And then obviously I continued on through the hunting season, that 16 day firearm season, and then post that into month of December. 
Um, and then we would then go out and capture uh, those deer again, or um, if we were able to, we would down, get the collars back and get download the data and then go capture deer again and start it for a second year. Um, so yeah, so it, again, it got a lot of data, fine scale data, you know, thousands upon thousands of GPS points, uh, you know, across that area at 5,000 acre ranch um, over the course of a couple of years. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's kind of dive into you know some of the results now. What what you what you saw from from this from the hunting pressure, sure. and we'll just kind of we can just kind of break it down by by each unit, uh, and kind of you know talk about about each one of those and and the results. And I don't know. I mean, I guess we can start with the control. I'm not sure there's a whole lot to say there, but, <laughs> yeah. but so the control area was just no no hunting no. I mean, was there just no human traffic yeah, whatsoever yeah. in that? Yeah. So we, well, one thing um, I, I wanted to mention too, is that uh, to really get a good sense of where these hunters were spending their time, um, we did two things that we, so the hunters would come in in the morning. Uh, we had a, basically a check station. They would come in, they would sign in. We would also give them a GPS unit. And it was basically like an armband GPS unit that they would put on. Um, just a Garmin you know, unit, and they would uh, track them. We would get locations like every minute of where they were at. Um, so not only are we tracking the deer, we're also tracking the hunters because um, we wanted to see where are these hunters going. Um, and then secondly, we also had the hunters record. We had these observational cards that we had them fill out. So basically it's, you know, recording down, you know, what hunting unit you're in, um, what time did you get into your hunting unit? You know, what time did you leave your hunting unit? That allowed us to kind of maintain those, um, you know, again, the four hour minimums on the weekends, uh, Saturday and Sunday for those three weekends for that hunting pressure um, between low and high density. Um, and then also record down how many deer did you see, whether they be collared bucks that we had captured or we had uncollared deer. And obviously there were um, deer on the property that, uh, you know, they were uncollared and so they would write them down how many does, fawns, et cetera, that they were seen. Um, so we had that information for later analyses. And one of the things that's really interesting out of uh, some of that data, we actually have a student that just uh, finished up the other year and hope we'll get it all published here shortly, taking that hunter data, because we haven't done a whole lot with that data, um, and looking at that hunter data relative to their success. You know, what are any certain strategies? Because, again, we also would record down where you're in a, you know, still hunting, where you're in a tree stand, where you're in a ground blind, um, and really understanding maybe some more about the human side of things um, relative to the the uh, mature bucks that we had powered in the property. Um, and then I guess I'll add one last thing to that is that we did, um, you know, we obviously brought the hunters out there. And so we did want to have an incentive for them to come there. Um, so we did each year, we had the biologists that managed those properties. They came up with a population estimate uh, that was you know, specific for that area, um, but they would then use that as kind of a determinant of how many bucks and does they would allow to be harvested off that property. And so each year it, it was arranged about three to four bucks um, that had, and they, the bucks had to score 120 inches or larger. And prior to the hunting season starting, we actually did a training session with the hunters to make sure hunters were well aware of what a 120 plus inch buck looked like um, to, to kind of help with that decision making. And then we also allocated, I think it was about 20 does uh, per year that could be harvested as well. So, you know, and there was an incentive. It wasn't like you're just coming to fill a spot um, kind of thing. You were actually going to be able to have a chance at harvesting something there. And we had um, one of the bucks, unfortunately, it got uh, poached early uh, before the season, but we had one of our bucks in the property scored over 175 inches. Oh. 
that we uh, we at, we called him uh, his his name was him. Um, so I remember being on the radio uh, when we were trying to capture some of these bucks, and one of my the technicians working with me, Josh Gascamp, uh, said, "Hey, I, we got him under the net." So it was pretty exciting to capture him. Unfortunately, though, like I said, he got poached before the hunting season. Uh, but we did have some really nice bucks that were on the the property, and so hunters had a chance of harvesting a nice deer um, during their time out there. Yeah, and, and they were they were asked not to shoot ones with collars. Is that correct? That, that's correct. Okay. Yeah, because we had um, you know each season you know you you have you know approximately twenty some collared bucks there. Um, again, some of them would you know bleed over from year one to year two. That's why we had ended up having about thirty seven collared bucks. Um, we uh, basically required that essentially, you know, to, re- to avoid the reduction in our sample size we have our bucks that were collared. Yeah, not to, not to harvest any of them, but to, all these bucks also had ear tags, um, like you would see like cattle ear tags. Um, and so you could identify the number in there. And then the nice thing was we had the hunter locations. We were tracking them with a, a, you know, a GPS unit. We obviously had locations every eight minutes. And so then I went back in um, during my uh, master's thesis work um, and looked to make sure, okay, they said they saw, you know, number 32 was number 32 even remotely close to them. Yep. Yeah, it was. It came within, you know, 20 yards of their stand site. Um, so then that would get, validate that observational data. Okay. Yeah. that, that That's interesting. Yeah, because you know how <laughs> I know as a hunter, it's easy to you know for your for your eyes to play tricks on you, or, oh, you sure. know, or think you get a glimpse of something <laughs> and it may not be you know quite what you thought it was. So. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and that's why that validation was really important, and getting that fine scale data from both the hunters and the deer that allowed us to be able to do that um, to get a better idea of okay, this wasn't certainly the deer that they did actually observe, collared buck they observed. So. Yeah, and that'll that'll be interesting to hear about the the hunter behavior side of it. I'll be yeah. looking forward to to that because uh, I didn't have you know anything in my notes about it. But even as you were talking about that, I, you know, I'm thinking, well, I wonder, you know, I wonder if these hunters, if there were like areas even in the even in the high density area, you know, if there was there was pockets of basically unhunted cover where sure. where these you know hunters were sticking to you know maybe close to access and and that sure. kind of thing. So yep, absolutely, yeah. So that'll be some of the work that's you know be coming out pretty quickly. I I just got the manuscript the other day to review for publication, and so um, yeah, I think it'd be great to be able to do an article on that and um, share all those results we got from that project. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess my only question as far as the the control area is did did you see a an influx of deer coming into the control area from from the uh the hunted areas <laughs> That's what they all to. Uh, yeah. there definitely was there definitely was uh use of that control area you know it wasn't like a dramatic shift i think the one big thing that really stood out to me is that the assumption is in a lot of cases that these deer are just you know, I put pressure in these areas and they're just totally moving out of these areas completely. And they're just, you know, again, vanishing. Um, yes, I think that can be true in certain uh, instances, especially at high pr- pressure situations. And you don't have maybe a lot of cover there, which, again, goes back to the point of, you know, doing proper habitat management efforts to ensure that you have cover there, security cover for those deer. Um, and, and that's really, you know, again, we saw some of these bucks that would move over there, but they wouldn't stay necessarily in those areas. Um, they would keep coming back and forth, you know, to these different treatments, whether it be the low or the, the high density. 
Um, and I think for me, you know, thinking about that from a hunter standpoint is, you know, the, the deer do move around. They have a home range. You know, you, um, you know, does may anywhere, depending on what, what part of the country you're in, the, the habitat, they may have home range, you know, two, three, four hundred acres. And then bucks may have upwards, you know, over a thousand plus acres. And so, again, you know, they're they're moving about the landscape um, and they're, you know, likely encountering hunters on neighboring properties as well. And we actually had a couple of our bucks that collared bucks that had got harvested um, by neighboring hunters um, on properties that were adjacent to that ranch. Um, and so, again, you know, yeah, there's, you know, it's not necessarily they're all going to just take and leave. <laughs> they're, they're, they'll, they'll find some places. And I think that was one of the things. And as we kind of dive in here in more detail, I can kind of chat a little bit more about some of the specifics there with the different treatments. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'll we'll move right into that, and and let's jump right into the the low hunter density area, and I think you said that was one hunter per two hundred and fifty acres. That's correct. Which, yep. you know, certainly certainly low density where I'm at here in, in uh, Georgia. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what I always like to say. It's it's definitely relative to the area we were in and kind of the guidance that we had. Because I again, I being from Pennsylvania and being one of the states that you know there was a lot of hunters there. I I know numerous places that uh, I hunted, especially even on public lands that had a pretty high density of hunters. So, you know, there's always a little bit of a relative factor there you got to play with. So Right, right. Yeah, there's some places out west you could you could see every bit of the 250 acres. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. yeah, yeah. But like you said, in, in a more uh, forested area, yeah, you could certainly fit, fit a lot more hunters in there and, and yeah. often do in, in a lot of cases. But so what did... Uh, I guess what, you know, what did you see? What, what was the results of that? How, how did that low hunter density impact uh, deer behavior? Yeah. So looking at um, general, so we kind of classified things into kind of, I'll just kind of maybe use kind of like three bins. So one being movement. So like, you know, when, you know, how fast are they moving through these areas? Are they spending much time in these areas? And then, you know, diving into then specific, like what cover types are they selecting for? Um, we didn't do a, our our uh, habitat um, analyses. We would look at a resource selection analyses. We had it kind of generalized for the ranch into kind of you know forest uh, mixed cover types. That's basically a mix, you know, forest, you know, some grassland because that that was kind of what was pretty predominant there. Um, and then you know, obviously open grassland areas. And, and I mentioned that earlier about like a pasture type areas. Um, so those are kind of like gen- three general cover types we focused on. Um, you obviously could dive deeper into that, but uh, that's kind of what we focus on for the analysis. And so um, we looked at that. So movements, then the resource selection, and then we looked at observations. Because as I mentioned, you know, the hunters, we required them to take observations of any deer that they were observing there. And I guess I'll start kind of with the movements. Um, we looked at movement when the deer, we when we had locations of deer within the control, low and high, we looked and kind of compared you know, amongst those three areas and the deer that were in the low density behave more similarly to the deer that were in the control. And that's not totally surprising. You know, you feel like, hey, you have an area that has no hunting pressure, no hunters in there. And then you have an area that has really low density of hunters. You know, the, the deer behave very similarly to that control. You know, they they were, you know, moving about the landscape similarly you know, moving at your typical, you know, kind of morning, evening hours, like we typically associate for deer activity. 
Um, and then, you know, when you get into resource selection, um, they were they were selecting for similar cover types um, within those areas. Obviously, you know, like any, you know, animal or, you know, even, uh, I always like try to humanize things. Like if something, if somebody was after you, you're going to, you're going to likely seek out not hanging out in an open field. Um, you're going to, you're going to go to areas where you have some visual obstruction between you and, um, what may be, uh, trying to get you. So you think about like, uh, you know, um, coyotes and deer, for example, well, you know, a deer is going to try to find, especially if it's a fawn, they're going to, uh, the mom's going to take that fawn to an area where it has some cover to hopefully avoid that coyote finding it. Um, this is kind of an example. Um, so similarly, that's, you know, even within that low density, there was a sense from the deer, obviously, from the data that, you know, they're going to they're going to find they're going to look to seek out those uh, forested areas. But again, it behave, they behave very similarly to that control. So, you know, one tangible thing that came out of that from a hunting standpoint is, you know, the basically the lesser amount of pressure you had, the more likely you were able to, you know, have a, a basically a lesser impact on those deer or their behaviors, um, which again is not totally surprising. So it's like a less human intrusion, you know, the better per se um, in that situation. Um, again, it's all relative to different study areas and things like that. So, um, but then when you contrast that, and you you look at like uh, you know observations of deer again. You, you I'll, I'll kind of use this real quick with the high density. You know we had them uh, record down. You know if it was a collared or uncollared deer. Again if it was a buck, doe, fawn. Um, and so the first weekend of the rifle season, not surprising like many other um, you know states. You know you t- tend to see um, you know more deer maybe your first outing or two in the stand. Um, and then over time you start saying, well, what's going on? Like, there's not many deer hanging around here. I know there's deer in this area. Well, what we saw was, you know, you saw a lot of deer, even in both those treatments, high and low the first weekend, and then things began to decline over time. Um, and, and again, this is why we wanted to also encapsulate, uh, harvest as well, because we wanted to show that the declining observations was not a function of having less deer because you harvested that that number of deer on the property. Um, it was not that, and that it was that these deer were gonna were exhibiting behavioral changes um, to avoid hunters. So, um, and I don't know if you want me to jump in and kind of compare the low and the high, particularly on the movements and you know resource selection or not. Um, but we can do that if you want. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll definitely that that's that's where we'll head. I had I was thinking okay so. In the low density area, you said they, you know, you didn't see a, a significant change in in the amount of movement. Um, not a whole lot of change as far as the maybe the areas that where they were at. But did did observations go down? I mean, considerably, like from the first weekend, the second, the third, or yeah. Yeah. So um, overall, um, when you looked at those uh, for, um, you know, bucks and does um, across both treatments, whether low hunter or high hunter, they did decline. They uh, really declined uh, pretty precipitously, you know, from the first weekend to the third weekend for that high hunter density. And so you can you can say you can basically look at it and say, well, ultimately, you know, you have more eyes in the field. So, in you know, just kind of thinking intuitively, you would think, well, there's probably a better chance I'm going to see something. If you have more people out there seeing deer. Um, well, well, again, what we found with that, those observations of both collared, and then again, we looked at uncollared uh, bucks, is that 
those observations decline regardless of what density of hunters you had out there. Um, and again, it was not a function of having less deer out there. We incorporated that into our modeling efforts. Um, but if you looked at the differences between low hunter and high hunter, it was uh, drastically different uh, for those in the high hunter um, density, the observations, I should say, a decline in observations than it was in the low hunter. Um, so again, you know, there's more eyes in the field though, um, but they saw less and less deer as the season progressed at 16 day firearm season. Okay. So yeah, like you, like you said, kind, kind of what you would expect. I mean, sure. you, you know, we, we've all experienced that the, the further sure. into the season it gets, the, it seems sure. like the harder and harder it is to, to find the deer, to get on the deer. Oh, yeah. 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 So, and, and it's, and it, I think the thing that's really important to, as kind of a take home really is that you know, these deer are there. It's not a function of that they're just disappearing and just like, you know, going to the next county kind of thing. They're, they're around. It's just they're, you know, there's, you know, they're also outside of hunting pressure. They're also trying to live their lives. You know, resources are changing, you know, so food sources are changing, you know, day to day. And so they have to be adaptable and constantly moving around. So they may be in an area for a short period of time and then off they go to another area uh, within their home range. Hey, I wanted to take just a quick break from the interview to let you know that the work we do at the National Deer Association wouldn't be possible without support from partners like Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops, and Cabela's, and their customers throughout North America. A grant from Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's Outdoor Fund is helping support NDA's national initiative called Improving Access, Habitat, and Deer Hunting on Public Lands. We have a very aggressive goal of improving 1 million acres of federal and state-controlled lands by 2026, and this grant from Bass Pro and Cabela's Outdoor Fund is directly accelerating work in this initiative to address forest vigor and access issues in six states. In the end, this will address declines in deer hunter numbers, habitat quality, and hunter access, helping to improve wildlife conservation for generations to come. Hey, now back to the interview. So, so I guess what, what did you see? Like you said, the, the deer are still there the the hunters are still out there, but they're seeing fewer and fewer deer. What, what did you see from the deer as far as behavior? I mean, did their movement shift to, to mostly nighttime movement or, you know, are they staying in, in denser cover or kind sure. of what, what was their behavior change that, that you saw yeah, um, that's, as that's the season cool. progressed? Yeah, season, yeah, that's a really great question. So um, overall, their movement rates declined um, from kind of that preseason. Like I said, we we gave the hunters um, a couple of days, you know, about a little over a week before the hunting season started to go out and scout their unit out and put up their stands, kind of get familiarize themselves. And so we looked at kind of from that point on through to the end of that 16-day firearm season. Um, and we kind of called them like, you know, the risk days. So the risk days were when people were out there in the field and then the non-risk days were when uh, nobody was there. And so again, you know, that's that 16 day firearm season or were people always on that ranch throughout that 16 day firearm season at one point or another. And so um, looking at the, the movements, um, both uh, daytime and nighttime movements, both declined. Um, so we didn't necessarily see a shift where, you know, hey, you know, hunters are out of here and we're just going to take a move at night a lot. That doesn't mean they're not still active. It's just they're move, they're not moving as far um, as they were earlier in the season. Um, and so I think part of that is there's there's a few different potential explanations for that. 
Um, one is I think that the in these areas, you know, if deer, if it's it might be hard for them sometimes to determine, are you actually gone? Are you, you know, that, you know, that maybe they don't hear the truck start up and leave. <laughs> so they don't know that you're actually out of there. Um, and so they're kind of thinking, well, maybe there's somebody still here. Um, we think of it as pretty obvious. Well, yeah, I obviously left. They m- most likely know that I'm going. And in some cases they do. Heck, I have, I remember getting out here in Nebraska. I get back to my truck and literally I get a uh, pop up a text message from one of my cell cams. A deer was standing literally right where I walked at five minutes. They were obviously around. They knew I was there and they decided to leave. So again, movement rates declined, um, and this was really across the board for both the low and high density um, treatments. They just were moving less. Um, they you weren't really seeing a like spike in movement rates at nighttime. So they are still moving around. They're just not moving as fast. Um, and, w- and one of the things I guess that kind of also ties to is um, going back and harping on habitat management. I think if you have a property that doesn't have high quality resources to keep those deer there, they're, you know, you get enough pressure there, they're going to move. They're going to move to some other place that likely has those resources and may actually have less pressure. Um, and so in this case, this property was managed. They, you know, use prescribed fire there. Um, and again, it was a, a property that they've been managing for a number of years. And so those deer felt probably pretty safe. And yeah, they knew hunters were there but they could take and just not move as far and they could still find the resources that they needed um, while avoiding hunters on the property. So again, you know, that's, uh, I think that was really important to kind of understand that. And then um, when you di- when you asked the question about, you know, resources um, really one of the things when we looked at it um, and again, those different uh, cover types, you know, again, I mentioned like mixed, you know, forest fields, you know, forested areas, you know, these kind of open areas. Um, what we saw was as um, you went from this kind of, you know, no hunter control area to these, you know, high density, there was definitely, uh, and not surprisingly, a shift from more open areas to forested areas. So the deer, you know, they're seeking out cover um, to avoid, you know, um, the hunters in the landscape. But then some of the other common places, like they're, you know, they were avoiding buildings, or avoiding, you know, ponds that were on the, the ranch, you know, because people would obviously set up a blind, you know, near one of these ponds um, as one of the intact water sources. Roads, not surprisingly, they're not going to hang around roads. Um, and you mentioned, you know, Dwayne Diefenbach earlier, they had done a study a number of years ago um, up in Pennsylvania, and, and we're looking at this uh, uh, question about, you know, where are hunters going and you know, how that's relative to where deer are spending their time. And ultimately, most hunters, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to make it a big inconvenience to go very far. And that's the deer learn that pretty quick. Um, and they, they go to places where they can avoid, uh, avoid you. Um, however, I've heard instances, and even in Pennsylvania, where uh, I've had uh, one of the properties I used to hunt in Pennsylvania, where um, one of the biggest bucks in that area had been killed uh, not too far from um, you know, he spent most of his time right near a road, um, but it was because he had really good cover right there and he could avoid the hunters. They would go past him <laughs> walking into their stands and he would just hang out near the road where it was really thick and nobody bothered him and he felt safe. And I think that's the point. Security cover is really cri- critical um, and, and how, you know, how these deer behave. Um, and so, again, I think that really good, harps on that 
importance of land management practices um, to ensure that you know you're providing security cover there for those deer and finding places where they can spend their time and they can essentially uh, you know avoid that risk um, to so you can hopefully keep those deer around for you know a few years, especially if you're trying to manage for mature bucks. Right, and uh, so I mean, obviously, it, it sounds like for the most part these bucks were still all even you know during the course of the season they were they were still killable they were still there and and still moving at least somewhat in and some during daylight hours so sure. I mean, would you say they were all still you know killable by by legal hunters you know if the hunters had, had done the, what they needed to do i guess <laughs> sure, but, yeah yeah i think in most cases they were um to answer your question i think in most cases they were they uh you know, they're obviously going to hunker down during the day to avoid that risk. Um, but if you were able to position yourself in locations where these deer were moving in those sh- short movements that they did do, um, then you were probably uh, very, uh, very likely to be successful. And again, that'll be some of the work that'll be coming out here shortly from that study to kind of dive into that. And I don't want to give any too much information away at the moment, but I, that'll be, a you know, a, I think a nice article we can put together um, on that. And so, yeah, they, you know, if, if you can position yourself in some of these areas, you have a better chance to, you know, to be able to harvest them. But again, it's really understanding those individual deer and you know, the behaviors. And I always like to say, you know, really any wildlife, you know, are very unique, just like your fingerprint. You know, they have individual personalities per se. And so, you know, you know, we, um, you know, we're, we typically are managing kind of for the mean uh, but all of them, some of them are sedentary. Some of them are big movers. Um, we have one buck actually on this property. It was prior to the hunting season. Um, and uh, he uh, just uh, took off on a seven-mile trek in a 24-hour time period. And you, you pose the question, well, why did he do that? I, I have no idea. I just kind of went to a point and, and uh, turned around at another ranch and walked right back to where he was hanging out. So. Um, those are all the questions that kind of the mysteries of the deer world, but, uh, you always are wondering what's going on. So, yeah. And it, it's amazing how much of a, a recurring theme that is, you know, as I, as I interview different, especially researchers here on this podcast and something, you know, we just have to remind ourselves as hunters is these are individual animals, you know, they have sure. their own personalities and, you know, we, we can, we can make broad statements about deer do this or deer do that, but, uh, every, every individual is unique. So every, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, I think one of the, the points from my perspective, especially the, you know, using this information as a you know hunter and kind of thinking about the uniqueness of these individuals, um, you know, you can be hunting one deer and it behaves, you know, totally different than another deer. And so, you know, again, that's, and we can dive in this towards the end, but, you know, some of the take-home points from this and being adaptable, um, recognizing that, you know, these deer are all going to do little different things just to, again, you know, they're, they're individualistic. They're trying to survive in the landscape. You're not the only threat. That's the other thing is, you know, they're, you know, they can, you know, they have disease, you know, you can have drought, you know, weather-related issues that impact them. You know, if you have poor quality cover, um, you know, all these different factors can affect their success in the landscape. And so um, they're ultimately trying to survive as you would um, on the landscape. So, yeah. Now, did you did you kind of backing up to the, the scouting session sure, there yeah. before the season? Did you notice any difference in, in the deer behavior after just that that initial scouting session before that season actually came in? 
Um, not a lot. Um, I think part of it was because we didn't really have much a of a uh, you know the, the presence was um, you know you, you gave hunters the opportunity. Some most came out and checked out their spots. Some didn't um, and just kind of showed up for the day of. And so it wasn't like a any real dramatic um, response. I think the thing that was the most dramatic is really when you know we were able to control those densities because that's the one thing with the preseason. You know we had a general time frame where people would come in and check out the property um, on those two days, and so they could come in, show up. They would get a GPS unit. We will we will track them out there. Um, so again, we had some of that preseason data on where they were going. Um, a lot of them obviously just kind of wander around. We we had maps printed up of the property, so each uh, of, of the property is large, but then of their actual unit, so they could kind of see ahead of time. Maybe you know, again, doing some aerial scouting where they may want to you know focus their efforts, and then they may go set up a stand in a specific you know um, you know a pinch point or whatever on the property. Uh, but main, most of the stuff really occurred once that we were able to really control that density because that's when you kind of again. It's not the pressure is not random, you want to say. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges. And what I think, again, one of the unique things still from our study and why it is really a, a well-designed study um, by my colleagues um, really was built around. We want to be able to control and develop kind of a really a manipulative based experiment as opposed to what we typically do is more observational based. And if you don't really know what the hunting pressure is, you know, that, that's hard to really say much about, you know, how those deer behave. Um, also, you if it's, um, you know, the pressure is kind of totally random, you know, fluctuating on the landscape, um, you know, is it associated to hunting pressure or, is, or are there other factors there? And that's where more uh, controlled experiments like ours really were able to dive into that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just I just ask because that's something I always wonder. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a public land hunter and do a lot of public land hunting, and and uh, of course here on on Georgia uh, wildlife management areas, a lot of the a lot of the gun hunts are three day. You know, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday hunts. So so about Wednesday, you know, sure. the, the trucks start rolling in, the, <laughs> the gravel starts popping, and you know, there's hunters walking all over the woods. Sure. No doubt in my mind, the deer, you know, know what's going on. I just sure. always wondered, you know, how much of an impact that's having, you know, how much their behavior changes from from Tuesday to, to Thursday, you know, with, sure, yeah. with well, all the incoming traffic. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you know, I, th I think that and there's been some other studies um, that have looked at, you know, that the timing of uh, throughout the week and kind of the responses of uh, deer, you know, as you get close to that weekend, it seems like it's like, oh, hey, I think there's hunters out here. <laughs> so I need to probably modify my behavior. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, again, you know, when you kind of generalize and kind of go out and look at all these different studies that have really dove into this topic of uh, hunting pressure, one of the common things that comes out, at least in my opinion, it's, again, you know, how much effort are you really exuding to go out there and, and search out and find where these bucks are at and, and, and kind of regulating yourself. Um, we, you know, we talked kind of uh, earlier about, you know, even with trail cameras, whether invention of trail cameras, you know, especially before cell cameras, we, you know, you had to go out and get SD cards out there. And so it was always like Christmas day when you'd have to go out and still is, I, I still have a number of their cameras that are not uh, cell cameras. And, uh, you know, still go out there and get those SD cards. You want to see what's on there. Well, the challenge is you want to go check them regularly. While well, deer begin to pattern you, um, you know, similarly as you're trying to pattern them. 
and they say, hey, I, you know, I want to you know, avoid this area. Like I said, you know, earlier, like avoiding ponds. You know, those deer in both the low and the high density were avoiding ponds. Um, it wasn't didn't mean that they never visited the pond. It's just that they were showing avoidance of them uh, during those uh, when we had that 16 day firearm season. Um, they were would visit them, you know, less frequently than what they would do at other times. Because, again, they're trying to avoid that risk. Right. Well, I'm sad to say I still remember having to go out and swap out the film in my trail camera. Oh, so. sure, yeah. <laughs> so. well, well, I actually got the chance to talk to some of my students here in a class uh, back in October, and I remember the little trail timers where we had oh, yeah. a little string we would put across the trail. Yep. I still remember that back in the day. Man, it really dates me when I go back and look at that. So, <laughs> Yeah, and, and, you know, you couldn't leave those out for weeks at a time. Oh, it man, wouldn't do you any good. That. You know, no, you absolutely. had to check it. <laughs> And you're always like, oh, something came across that trail at, you know, three in the morning. It's like, what is that? So, yeah, I, <laughs> it's, it's amazing how technology is really advanced. And now you have things at your phone. And uh, but again, it still is, um, you know, from my my perspective, you know, the, the, the cameras are just one tool amongst other tools that a hunter has in their toolbox and kind of think about how can I be most effective out there to, to have mo- the most success? Because. You know, granted, you know, even myself, I, I have three kiddos and I don't get as much time out as when I was younger. Um, and and so it's you know, I want to be able to be as you know uh, successful and targeted when I get out there as, as possible and most efficient. So this type of research really can help guide that and help me be more adaptable and more efficient in the long run. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, did did you guys monitor the deer any at all post season? We did. Yeah. So one of the things, so, and I'll kind of clarify here. So when the, um, with the, when the hunting pressure started, again, I, we talked about those observations declining after that first, um, weekend, really what we saw after, you know, two to three days of, um, consistent hunting pressure in those two different treatment areas is when we started to see those behavioral changes. So in other words, you know, it was like two to three days of those hunters being in those same same areas, same stands, et cetera. Then, it, then deer started recognizing there was something going on. I need to shift my behavior, which again, you know, we had the declining observations, both of collared and uncollared deer. And then, like I said, you know, it, that continued on to the last uh, weekend. And one of the things I want to note, and before I jump into the postseason, is that uh, those deer are still there. And that was one of the things that was really cool because we had collars on these deer. Now, I didn't mean they didn't jump to the neighbor's property and go venture over there. Like I said, we did have at least a couple of our bucks that did uh, get harvested on neighboring properties. But those deer were still hanging tight in those locations and those properties. Because, again, think about it. You're ultimately for yourself, you know, you're familiar with your home range where you live at. You're comfortable in that area. And then venturing outside of that, there's more unknowns out there. Um, and so those deer, they were comfortable. They had the quality habitat in there that they needed. And so they didn't have to go very far. Um, and so then as that kind of pivoted that last weekend, the, the funny thing was that we actually had collared deer in that high density on that last weekend, but not one of them was observed by hunters during that time. And they were in there when the hunters were in there, they just weren't observed. And so that leads me into the kind of the postseason. It took usually, you know, Three, four days after that hunting pressure was gone, the rifle season was over. Um, we had no other hunting pressure on the property and that the rest of the season um, for those deer to start recovering, per se, of kind of recognizing, I don't think there's hunters out here anymore. Um, and then the really, I think the, the fun part for me was um, 
we these collars have um, so they have the GPS on them, but they also have a thing called v, VHF or very high frequency. Essentially, what it is just a series of, of beeps. So it's that you can detect with an antenna um, that's customized for these collars. And so we were able to go in and lo- that's how we could locate those animals without having the, just the GPS points. Um, and so what we said is, hey, we'd like to kind of figure out, can we walk in on some of these deer and how do they behave? Because we know where they're at, you know, the, the VHF on those collars, we know we can go in and locate these deer. And so after the season was over, that's what we did. We went in and the one main highlight out of that was, and I, I'll tell a real quick story on this. Um, is that these deer, they, they're there. You're probably walking right past them all the time when you're out in the field, uh, hunting and, and kind of illustrate that as we had a situation where, uh, we went and we, we located this buck. We, it was just a small patch. I'm going to estimate like, uh, you know, probably like a 10 yard by 10 yard, you know, area a small little patch of cover, but really thick. And we, we walked up and we're like, we're right on top of this deer. It's got to be right here. Uh, my technician worked with me, Josh. He went around the other side of, the, of this little patch. And we're like, you know, this deer has got to be here. It's like right in here, uh, this spot. And so he, he walked in, a couple of steps in, up jumps his buck, takes off and runs out. Um, and so this buck, we would have easily walked right past this buck. Um, you would have never known he was even in there if you were hunting. Um, but he felt secure and safe in that area. And so as a hunter, now I'm sitting here going, well, how many times have I walked past deer in the field <laughs> that I'm going back to my stand or I'm walking out? And again, like I gave that story earlier of that deer when I got out to my truck the other year, uh, property out here in Nebraska, and I'm getting a, a cell text message that I had a deer in one of my cameras. And it's like, geez, I was just there five minutes ago. Sure, it saw me. Um, it just learned to avoid me. Yep. That, that's funny that, that just here recently, um, I was out just doing, doing some scouting on some public land and, and, uh, jumped a buck out of kind of like what you're describing there. It was, it was, uh, just kind of a briar thicket on the edge of, uh, a, um, just an old field, basically it's, it's they can, they had come in and, and they've planted this in longleaf pines and it's oh, mainly sure. just a lot of broom sedge and, uh, and small, small, uh, longleaf pine. But anyway, he, he was, I jumped him up out of, a thicket of briars there and and I had a cell camera with me and I thought well I'll throw one up here and see if see if he comes back because he uh he just sure. heard me busting through the brush and stuff I don't know that he even seen me um I just heard sure. him come up crashing out of that brush and take off but anyway I hung a camera there and uh ended up having to go back a couple days later because there was I, I hung it elevated because it's oh, sure. little clan sure. don't want my camera stolen Absolutely. But, but I had a long leaf branch that kept blowing into the frame oh. <laughs> of my camera. So I was getting continuous pictures on my cell camera. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I, I slipped back in there and uh, ended up, I, I never got a picture of this buck and I, I jumped him up. He was bedded right underneath of where I had my trail camera back oh, in, that, in that thicket. <laughs> so, oh, so yeah, he was, he was really fond and uh, of that thicket and, and felt secure in there. And uh, I don't know if he'll come back for a third round, but, but you know, he, he came right back and, and somehow avoided even, you know, getting in, getting in the camera picture. So sure. yep. um, yeah, but, it's, but, yeah. It, it really is amazing. Um, you know, the older I get and the more I hunt and just kind of how, yeah, how, they can really adapt and they, they recognize that. I remember even, you know, cases as a kid, you know, back in Pennsylvania, people obviously, and still today, you know, do deer drives. 
And, uh, you know, they would always talk about the bucks that would slip back through the drives. And, and uh, I had a couple of friends grow up as a kid, and they, they talked about that, where they'd end up using to have somebody that would post back behind because they'd have some of these bucks that would literally just, you know, hunker down, stay there. And then once they got, you know, moved through, these, some of these bucks would end up jumping up and going back through paths where they had just walked through. Um, so then they could have somebody back behind. But, you know, again, it's they're – they're learning the risk out there and they're recognizing, Hey, I can avoid that risk if I just hunker down and just don't move. So. Yeah. Yeah. They're amazing, amazing critters for sure. Absolutely. Well, as we kind of, I guess, wrap things up here, I guess kind of finish things off by what would be some of, and you've, and you've given some here along the way, but kind of your, your take home message or tips for the deer hunters listening to this podcast. Sure. Based on, you know, what, what you saw during your, during your research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think one of the first things, and, you know, we've kind of been talking about this throughout is, you know, recognizing a deer or simply are going to alter their behavior, um, not only to avoid you, uh, but also because they have resources are changing the landscape um, throughout. So for example, you have oaks, you know, especially if the oaks are dropping acorns, you know, eventually those acorns are going to dry up. And so they're going to be, you're going to, uh, you know, see fewer of them out there. And so deer are just going to constantly move around for resources that they can find. Um, so it really, I guess, simply kind of says is, you know, be adaptable. You know, we, through our project, it really helped us, you know, get a better understanding of, you know, that these deer, you know, they do recognize that, you know, the, the differences there in that density of hunting pressure between that low and high density you know, we saw more dramatic changes in the use of more forested, dense cover um, in that high density area, which, again, is not necessarily surprising. Um, you know, they move the deer move less, um, which, again, is not necessarily surprising. They're trying to avoid um, you out in the landscape. And really, you know, it kind of simply says that deer, you know, they're quick to learn. And it only took, you know, a few days of that hunting pressure during that first, you know, um, you know, two, three days of that uh, firearm season to, for them to make that change and say, you know what, I need to hunker down. Um, I think the other big important point to me is with that being adaptable is, you know, don't hunt the same spot um, over and over and over again. I think it's easy to do that. I'm, I'm guilty of doing that. You got a favorite tree stand. You're like, I know I see deer regularly in this spot. I'm not going to change. Um, and that that's true. It can be true. But especially if you're trying to hunt those big bucks, you got to be really, you know, have that element of surprise. I think that's really what it boils down to. And that's where, you know, you look at those seasoned hunters, um, you know, like yourself, Brian, um, you know, you, you, you learn that stuff over time. And I think for our new hunters out there, they're just getting into hunting, um, understanding that if you're out there and you want to harvest, a, whether it be a, a mature buck or even just a, you know, a doe or other um, you know, even a young buck or whatever, you know, deer are going to recognize, you know, the pressure in the landscape, but, but you have to be adaptable with that. You got to be moving around. Um, trail cameras can help with that. You know, they can, you can have, a, you know, cameras laid across the property, uh, whether that be public or private and look at, um, you know, where these deer are moving. Also, maybe if you're, especially if you're on public land, you know, where are other hunters spending their time at? Uh, most of most of the work shows, like I talked about earlier, they're not going to most hunters are not going to go very far off the road. Um, again, do you learn that they move away from those areas like our research showed and they're going to find those areas, those secured uh, areas, that security cover further back in. And that's where you have to be adaptable um, and move back in. That doesn't mean you can't hunt, you know, 
um, you know, closer to where you park at because there are cases when it works out. But most cases, you got to get back off the beaten path, per se, um, you know, as these deer are going to obviously, you know, shift and move around. You know, again, there's I think that be adaptable is really a really key thing, um, kind of a take home point to me. Um, and then I guess lastly, I'll just say is um, with that, uh, you know, just be cognizant of, you know, how you're entering and exiting your stand, reading the sign, the deer sign, in the woods. Again, just really familiarizing yourself with them and where they're moving. And so as you're, you know, as a hunter, as you continue to grow and, and become more seasoned, you learn to, okay, I, I, by reading this deer sign, I know that this is kind of what's going to likely happen. And then I can start, you know, using that camera data to kind of put the puzzle pieces together per se, um, and figure out where I need to be focusing my efforts. So yeah, there's a few little things again, just being unpredictable, I think is one of the most key things out of our project. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah, for years as a newer deer hunter, yeah, I, I would get that backwards. What I what I would do is I would find the sign, set up my stand, and think if I hunt here long enough, he's sure. bound to walk by. You know? Sure, <laughs> sure, a, absolutely. It's a numbers game, but but really, you know, what I was doing was every time I hunted there, there was less chance of him uh, sure. coming by. But and, it, and it's yeah. easy to do that because you get excited about it, you know, and you especially if you have, and again, it goes back to the cameras. You get a lot of photos in an area, and you say, "Boy, that buck's in here. I need to hunt that." And again. Yeah, you may want to hunt that area, but you may want to have multiple stand sites up. I had a one uh, a spot. I was, my dad was out here from Pennsylvania uh, recently for archery season, and uh, we were talking about one of our stand sites. And I said I I literally hung that stand last year back in August, and I did not hunt that stand one time. And it was just the you know wind wasn't right. You know, I just there was various factors that just led me to not ever hunt that stand, and it hung the whole season. And I pulled it down in the winter and. You know, and then rehung it again this year, and then he was actually successful and harvested a seven point out of it this season. So, you know, again, it's you know, you're you may have multiple stand sites out there to, um, and again, kind of looking at your different data. And I think that's the nice thing now with cameras and you got weather data and all these things where you can kind of help get a better uh, decision on where you want to focus your efforts. Um, and again, being unpredictable. Yeah, all good stuff for sure. Absolutely. Well, Andy, I, I, man, thanks so much for for carving out time to come on here and talk with us. I, I, like I said, I can't can't believe it took me this long to to get you on here to talk about this study. I, yeah, but I'm, I'm glad I did. This is, uh, yeah, the, I, like I said earlier, I, I love these uh, these GPS collar deer studies, and and this one that uh, you know a lot of them has information that that's relative to to hunting, and but sure. but this is one you know, one of the few that, that I've had somebody on here to talk about that was specific, you know, specifically looking at, at hunting and hunting pressure. So. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 If, uh, yeah, if, if listeners, they want to, you know, reach out, um, have any questions, they can, uh, you know, can shoot me an email. Um, and uh, I'm sure we can put that stuff in the, the bio there, uh, or, or, uh, get us on our, uh, social media accounts at, at awesome lab and follow us for more things we put out about this project and other projects that we're doing uh, here in other states across the country. Yep, absolutely. I will put links to those in, in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Brian. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right, guys, that wraps up our interview with Andy Little. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. 
If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to DearAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.